Well, hello everyone. Good afternoon. It is a great day to be in Manly, is it not? Yeah. All right. Excellent. I'm going to uh, just speak for about 20 minutes and I want to start with a question. The question is this. Actually, it's a question to keep in your own mind, okay? So don't yell out the answer. Keep this one to yourself. But here's my question. If you had a choice and you could be a famous writer or artist or sports person or musician, which would you choose? Good question, isn't it? Writer, artist, sports person, musician. I wonder which one you would go for. For me, uh, it's a simple answer. I would be the musician. I would love to uh, just feel the rush of performing in front of a stadium packed full of fans and stadiums all across the world. And let me be honest here, most of it is just pure, unadulterated vanity. I would just love the attention and the adoration of the fans. I want to tell you about a guy called Bono. You might have heard of him. He's the lead singer of a band that used to be great. And they used to be so good they could actually charge people money for their music. But these days they're just giving it away for free. And he said that... (laughs) He said that movies are different to songs. You know, movies... You watch them once, maybe twice. But songs, you listen to them over and over and over again, and they really become a part of your life. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, Good songs become a part of your life. And I guess I would love to write songs, and I would love to sing songs, and I would love to play songs that became a part of people's lives, because I just think that would be great. But it is so far from being even possible that it's laughable. I was uh, singing in in my old church in London one Sunday. And look, I reckon the church and the football stadium, they're about the only places that that grown-ups can actually go and sing these days. But I was uh, singing, and we finished one song. We're about to start the next song. And the girl leaned into me, who was standing next to me, and she said in that kind of polite, condescending way that some English folks can get away with, she said, you're tone deaf, Mr. Petty, and you really should stop singing. That's right, you don't need that self-esteem anymore. And by the way, there's a hole right over there that looks perfect for you to go up, crawl up and die in. I mean, I, uh, I just felt crushed, you know. I felt like I was in that dream where you turn up to school and you forgot to put your trousers on or you'd written a romantic poem to the love of your life and then she giggled at you because she thought you were joking. And uh, although I can see through it, her comments affect me to this day. I think I would rather put my face in a bike chain. I would rather change a thousand nappies, and I've changed a fair few in my time, than sing in front of a group of people. You're tone deaf, and you should stop singing. Well, I wondered whether that was right. Uh, Even if I am tone deaf, was she right to say that to me? And I realized the answer was no, because music is about life, isn't it? You tell someone that they can't sing, you don't just cut off their tongue, you really crush their spirit. And that's not right, because God gave us our tongues and our spirits. You know, he says in the Bible, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I don't recall him saying it had to be perfect in pitch. And it occurred to me, you know, that God is into the rhythm as well as into the harmony. He's into the muscle as well as into the the little melody that dances across the top. I wonder if you've ever sat in a thunderstorm, just counting the seconds between the lightning and the thunderclaps, waiting in silence and then just cowering at the boom of the thunder. You know God is into the boom of the thunder. And he's into just as much, 
you know, the off-key kind of percussion and songs of your four-year-old child as he's into the angelic voice of the soprano. Yeah, the biggest book in the Bible is called the Psalms. It's a collection, really, of 150 songs. It's really the songbook of ancient Israel. And, you know, not all of them had great voices. God is into the off-key as well as the pitch perfect. Anyway, I was thinking about what that girl said to me again. You're tone deaf, Mr. Petty, and you really ought to stop. And I realize that most people think Christianity is just the same, don't they? Don't you, perhaps? It's about rules that say you should stop. Rules that prevent us from enjoying ourselves in life. Rules that prevent us from being ourselves in life. And instinctively, we just sense that's wrong. When most people think about Christianity, they think about the Ten Commandments. They think about rules. They think God is a killjoy. He's the fun police. It's all about the rules. It's all about stopping you from being who you are and doing what you want to do. And maybe if I pressed you, you might even say... Well, that's the reason why I'm not a Christian. Or that's the reason why I really battle to live out my faith fully, the faith with which I profess. Because there are just too many rules which limit my freedom and which effectively say, you should stop. Now, let's be honest here. There are rules in Christianity. Sometimes, you know, some Christians say, well, actually, they're guidelines rather than rules to make it sound like they're less like rules, but they are rules. And Jesus didn't shy away from it when he said the most important commandments were to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say, look, they're not really rules. They're not really commandments. They're just guidelines. But if we are going to be honest, let's admit that there are rules in everything. And actually, we like the rules. Uh, For example, in a marriage, there's a rule, isn't there? that no one is allowed to become closer to either spouse, husband or wife, than the other spouse. And it's a good rule because it protects the marriage. And in friendship, there's a rule. It's unwritten, but it's still there, that if you share personal, close personal information with a friend of yours, the other friend is not going to broadcast that to the entire world. Now, that rule allows intimacy, and that's what makes friendships great. And in jazz, it's been really Hard to define exactly what jazz is, but almost everyone agrees that a key part of jazz is improvisation and spontaneity. But improvisation and spontaneity only really work if they're kind of coming out of a basic form or a musical structure. Otherwise, it's just a random collection of noise. I understand that there's going to be a game of uh, rugby league soon. And uh, on the footy field, it's the rules that actually make the game of rugby league. You see, without the rules, all you have is 30 sweaty buffheads running around on a paddock. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, even with the rules, all you have, anyway. But the rules, they create the game, don't they? They protect the game. They make it work. So we like the rules, and that's what the rules and the commands in the Bible do. They protect relationships between God and people, and between people one to another. Let me say as clearly as I can that at the end of the day, the Christian faith is not about rules. I mean, the rules are there just as they are there in everything. At the very heart of the Christian faith, there is a rescue, a rescue that leads to a relationship with God. And you probably think, a rescue? Well, that sounds good. I like the sound of rescue. It sounds much more exciting than rules, doesn't it? I mean, how exciting is it when there are rescues take place? When there's a whale that's beached itself and and we somehow rescue it and return it to the open ocean. I mean, that normally makes front page news, doesn't it? Or our friends 150 metres down this way, 
the red and yellow rescuers, the lifesavers. We think of them as heroes, and rightly so. We love the idea of rescue. It grieves us, doesn't it, when rescues come too late or go wrong. And I'm really not trying to be clever with words when I say that at the heart of Christianity is a rescue. But here's the thing. With this rescue, it's not us that are doing the rescue. In fact, we're not even just spectators looking on at the rescue. We're the ones who are in need of the rescue. And you might be thinking, I'm not so sure that sounds so exciting anymore. I think I might prefer singing in front of a big audience than admitting that I'm in need of rescuing. And you might think to yourself, really? Really? I'm quite okay. Thanks for asking. It's interesting, though, all the, all the writers of the Bible think differently. All of them. Uh, for example, there was a, an Israelite prophet called Isaiah. He, he preached and he wrote 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is one of the things he said in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Bible. He said, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And you know, the people that he said that to, they proved him exactly right. Because they hated what he said so much, they killed him instead of listening to him. I guess comparing people to sheep is not very complimentary, is it? Visited my friend's farm. He lives seven hours north, west, west, west. Uh, Almost in the dead centre of New South Wales. It's almost in the dead centre of nowhere as well, if you know what I mean. Deep in drought. And the sheep there are dusty. And the sheep there are smelly. And they're not especially bright. You know, we can write a symphony on our iPads. And to be compared to sheep sounds pretty offensive, doesn't it? But, you know, the prophet Isaiah wasn't saying we all like sheep are smelly. And he wasn't saying we all like sheep are dusty. And he wasn't saying we all like sheep are not especially bright. He was saying we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It does beg the question, doesn't it? From whom have we gone astray? Well, from God, of course, the, the great shepherd. And the second half of that little verse there interprets the first half. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways. Now, isn't that spot on? As bright and talented as we are, deep down, don't you think that is true? We all, by nature, wander away from God, not seeking Him, but turning to our own ways. You know, that's what the Bible calls sin. And it just means our turning away from God to our own ways. And the truth is, you can actually be a really nice person. You can be a warm and friendly and upstanding and moral and highly talented person and at the same time, wander away from God, turning to your own way. And can I ask this question humbly and respectfully and gently? If you think about your own life soberly, could those words be true of you? Gone astray from God... And turn to your own way. Of course, you might wonder to yourself, why is turning away from God such a disastrous thing in the Christian view? I mean, I'm a resourceful person. Why is that so bad? Many of you are parents. All of us here are children. So let me put it this way. My sons are the apples of my eye, if that's the right way of saying it. I love them. I love them more than life itself. And I don't think there's much that I wouldn't do for them. But just imagine that as they grow up, one of them 
insists on having nothing to do with me, not a thing, despite my attempts to engage with him, despite my concern for him, despite my actual provision for him. He prefers to carry on his life. He's determined to carry on his life without regard to me. Of course he's polite to his friends and he really loves them. And he's generous to the poor. And he works hard. And he's respectful of other people. And when he borrows my car, he takes really good care of it. Always makes sure it's returned with a full tank of petrol. But he refuses to let me into his life, even though I'm his father. And he uses my name as a swear word when he bangs his finger with a hammer. And that's the only time I even have an inkling that he even remembers that I'm his dad. Despite his hard work, his politeness, his respect, his generosity, you would have to say that the way he treats me is not right. You'd have to say he's a bad son to me. And so if you're a parent, or all of us here who have been children, if you can understand that, then you can understand why turning away from God seems so serious in the Christian view. Now Jesus, who was actually a carpenter, not a shepherd by trade, picks up on this little poem from the prophet Isaiah some 700 years later. And in Luke chapter 15, he tells the story of a shepherd with a hundred sheep who loses one of his sheep. And you can just imagine in the story, the shepherd counting them off, 96, 97, 98, 99. One's lost. One's turned and wandered off. And Jesus says to the people there, he says, doesn't the shepherd leave the 99 who are safe in a safe place? Go after the lost one. Yeah, that's what the shepherd does. He goes off to rescue the lost sheep. You know, we tend to think that God is all about the rules. Actually, he's really about a search and rescue mission to find the lost sheep who has gone astray from him, who has turned to his own way. And it's really not difficult to understand what Jesus means by this little story. God is the shepherd, and the lost sheep are people like you and I, those whom Isaiah, the prophet, said have turned to their own way. When you think of God, do you think of him as on a search and rescue mission to bring people back to himself? It really is the rescue, not the rules that lie at the very heart of the Christian faith. And like the shepherd in the story, God was prepared to drop what he was doing in order to seek and to rescue people like you and me. And uh, it's an obvious question, isn't it? How does he do that? After all... <laughs> None of us have seen shepherds walking past our houses recently. And if we did, we'd call the police and deadbolt the front doors, wouldn't we? How does he search and rescue us? Well, the prophet Isaiah gives us a little hint in the next line of the little poem that I read to you earlier. We all like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on him the iniquity of us all. The rescue happens as the Lord lays on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The wrongdoings, the failures, the offenses, and really the, the whole penalty that is due to us for our sin, for our wandering away from God and turning to our own ways. I've said all along that at the heart of the Christian faith is rescue. At the very heart of the rescue is this. Jesus takes the punishment for our turning away from God the punishment that our sin deserves. And he did that when he died upon a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem at a real place in a real point in history. He suffered an excruciating 
painful physical death there, but he also absorbed the righteous spiritual punishment of God on our behalf. You see, Jesus' death does not just give us an excellent example of sacrificial love to follow. Don't you think that dying unnecessarily is an odd way to show your love? No, his death was entirely necessary because it carried the penalty that our wandering away from God deserves. His death soaks up the punishment that is rightly due to us on account of us turning not to God so that the punishment will not fall upon us but upon Jesus. So there are rules and they are important and they have their place because they protect relationships. But we are not rescued by obeying the rules because we can just never get them all right. We're rescued by trusting that the Lord has laid on him, on the Lord Jesus, the iniquity, the penalty that accrues for my own wandering away. Now in a minute the music will resume. And wherever you happen to be watching it later on tonight, there'll be a game, so there'll be music and there'll be noise, and that's cool because God is into the music and he's into the noise. But between then and now, in the little moment of hush that we have Right now, can I again ask you respectfully, gently, humbly, could it be right that deep down in the wellsprings of your heart, you rather trust in your ability to keep the rules, whether they're moral rules, whether they're a way of kind of doing church that's unwritten but you think are there, you trust in those things rather than in the death of Jesus on your behalf. Can I ask humbly, could you have been sitting in church for weeks or months, or even years, and never really given control over to Jesus. Could I ask you, could it possibly be right that you have wandered away from God in your life and turned to your own ways? Could that be right? And I guess I'm asking, would you be able to admit it? And if the answer to that question is yes, would you be willing to believe that God rescues you from that wandering away And it's attached penalties, not by sending you a literal shepherd, which would just be weird. Not by asking you to obey a whole lot of rules, that's just impossible. But by trusting that God has laid the punishment that that wandering deserves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking you, would you be prepared to entrust your life and your future to one who would do that for you? Now, perhaps you're thinking there, this sounds good, but I need to find out more. Maybe you do need to find out more. Maybe you'd like to take away a free copy of this little book. It's called Essential Jesus. It's Luke's Gospel, one of the biographies of Jesus' life from the Bible, the same book that has the story about the lost sheep. There's free copies up the back. By all means, take one on your way out. You might like to join us for that course, that five-week overview that's called Simply Christianity that Bruce was talking about. You'd be welcome to do that. You know, maybe you'd... um, just like to come back and we'd like to say you'd be more than welcome to do that but perhaps you know enough to to know i've wandered from god i'm wandering from him this very day and you might be thinking it's time for me to return to him well you do that by first trusting that god has laid on jesus your mistakes your shortcomings your sin your iniquity You do that by trusting in that great rescue. And if that's you, in a moment, I'd love to lead us in a prayer of commitment or perhaps a prayer of recommitment, if that's what you'd like to do. But as we finish up, I want to say this. Never let anyone, 
ever tell you to stop singing. Cuts out your tongue. Crushes your spirit. But never let anyone tell you that Christianity at its heart is all about the rules. It's about a rescue that leads to relationship with God. It's about a wonderful rescue in Jesus. So let's pray to him now. I'm going to give you a moment just to think about your life and then I'll lead us in prayer. Dear God, I admit that I have wandered from you like a lost sheep. And I know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I trust that he did that for me when he died, taking my sins upon himself. So tonight I say, please, help me to live for him wholeheartedly all the days of my life. Amen. Just before I get down, I want to say it'd be uh, real good to tell someone if you prayed that prayer for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. By all means, take a free copy of Essential Jesus on the way out or come along to the Simply Christianity course that we're running in a few weeks' time or just come back. You'd be really welcome. But it would be good to tell a friend who brought you along today or perhaps tell one of the members of our church up the front here once we're done with our service here this afternoon. I'm about to get down. Charlotte and Jazz Lab will be back up to entertain us with some more great jazz. Uh, The collection will be going around in a little while. Uh, Regulars, you know what to do with that. If you're a visitor, feel free to put those white connect cards in. Thank you very much.